U.S. reading of Russia's intentions, you know, the U.S. is claiming we understood that the war was coming and we tried to tell the Ukrainians, well, you shouldn't have been telling the Ukrainians, you should have been giving them the weapons. That would have made it clear that you believe that an invasion is imminent. Adrian Karatnitsky, a senior fellow with the American think tank Atlantic Council, is joining my podcast today. During the next 25 minutes, we will discuss the Russian war against Ukraine. I am the host of this podcast, which is called Ukraine Decoded, and my name is Viktor Kovalenko. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions about foreign policy and national security. I know Adrian Karatnitsky for years. Since the 90s, he visited Ukraine as a president of the Freedom House, an American organization that promotes democracy. Now I live in the United States and Mr. Karatnitsky is with the Atlantic Council, a think tank in the field of international affairs. I thought that it would be great to get back together on the podcast and talk about what's going on with Ukraine now, especially during the Russian invasion. This entire year was tough and depressing for Ukrainians, but I would like to start our discussion from positive outcomes. Adrian, what three major positive things for Ukraine do you see? The most positive thing is the solidarity of the nation and the spirit of the nation and the way the nation is organized. And I think it's reflected in the way that the military functions it is organized, which means it is a much more mobile and flexible and capable of cooperation rather than top-down military leadership. So I think first it's the society, the unity of the society. Second is the influence of Ukraine as a society on military affairs rather than the reverse. And the third is the solidarity and support from the West that uh, remains consistent. But I think all of that drives from the quality of Ukrainian society. Ukraine over 30 years has developed its own sense of freedom, its own sense of space, its own comfort with its leaders and its discomfort with leaders, but then its activism to force them to do the right things. And I think it's created a significant space for freedom, which has empowered civil society and society more broadly of the nation. But all importantly, it's created this, you know, example of freedom for the world. So Ukraine is fighting for a freedom that Ukrainians themselves have created over the last three decades. It hasn't been perfect. It's not a perfect democracy, but it is a very active society, and the world sees this. And so I think all these things come from the ground up, from the people up. From the people is the defense of the relatively democratic and open system, from the way people and society organize. I would say not even the state is organized, but how people informally do things that has also, you know, influenced military affairs. And the third is seeing all of this builds this uh, great uh, wellspring of support for Ukraine. The next positive outcome of the year for Ukraine is a dramatic transformation of their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, from a former comedian and experienced in politics into a unifying leader of the nation. Adrian, do you also see this? I think he was a challenged president before the war, but I've explained it this way, that Zelensky, as a live performer, has an intuitive feel for the audience. He can almost channel the public. 
I think he was spontaneous as well as scripted in what he did. And I think he understood the public and how to reach it. But also, he got information from the public. This was an exchange. You understand your audience, and you understand how you should behave towards that audience. And that means that I think that sensitivity has given him the great tool of embodying the nation as well as leading the nation. Plus, I think he's turned out to be, you know, not just an acting as a tough character with this rough voice, but he's a pretty tough guy who showed his toughness and spirit. And I think that the other more important thing is that as this has gone on, I think he has finally understood what it is to be Ukrainian. I think he had a very vague idea of, you know, getting together, that everyone in this nation is equal. Why can't we all get together? Uh, the Soviet legacy is part of it. If you're friendly with Russia, it's part of it. If you're, you know, a, a nationalist, you're part of it. I think he now understands better the national narrative. And partly he understands it because the narrative inside the heads of many Ukrainians has shifted. Ukrainians have shifted in the vast majority to the idea of a both ethnically based nationalism and patriotism and a civically based patriotism. And those two patriotisms have come together and completely removed from the political field uh, the sort of the Sovok, the sort of Soviet era lack of national awareness or national identity. And I think he's undergone that same evolution. So I think all of those things together have made him a very strong leader, very capable leader for a period of wartime. And I don't think he's acting. He's simply channeling the spirit of the nation. He's not performing from scripts. I think this is a kind of a deep emotional connection. And that's the reason why it works, because it's completely authentic and completely honest. During the entire war, President Zelensky didn't leave Ukraine. The only foreign trip he did was in December to the United States. Adrian, what is your opinion about his speech before the joint session of U.S. Congress? And the second part of my question, can Ukraine secure bipartisan support after Republicans won the majority in the House? Well, first about the speech. I thought it was a masterfully crafted speech. It was very, very well done by rhetorical standards, even by the standards of most speeches that are given in the United States. I think it was quite well received. Much of it was addressed directly to the American people and not simply to Congress, which I think was also extremely powerful. It, it had the connection through Christmas and through, you know, the, the, the story, telling the story of Ukrainians facing this difficult winter. It painted the enemy correctly. It painted the challenge correctly, all those kinds of things. What I would say is it's solidified, certainly for the next year and maybe well beyond, the uh, bipartisan support. And what I mean bipartisan support is probably at least the majority of support in the Republican Party and the vast majority of support, overwhelming majority of support among Democrats. And also, I think that's reflected in polling, where the highest level of support is among Democratic voters, the second is among independents. And the third is among Republicans, because, you know, he's trying to limit the influence of what we would call the MAGA wing of the uh, Republican Party, which in turn is influenced by a kind of isolationism, by a kind of anti-Europeanism, kind of a unilateralism that, uh, uh, you know, the president and certainly his, uh, Donald Trump Jr. have been promoting as have some of the more extreme members of the MAGA contingent. 
But I don't see that group growing in influence. I think we see the beginning of the Republicans looking for someone other than Trump. And I think that the even the people who share some of the values that Trump tried to promote and the focus on immigration and the focus on sort of these cultural issues like wokeism and so on, those people will have a more, I would say, pragmatic, traditional approach uh, to foreign policy. And here I refer to people like uh, uh, Governor, uh, Governor DeSantis. At the press conference in the White House with Mr. Zelensky, President Biden was asked, why not to give Ukraine all the weapons it needs at once, so it could kick out the Russian occupiers fast? Seriously, why does America wait? Well, I think we've seen throughout this period, including the period of the buildup, including the period after 2014, a reluctance by large segments of the establishment to give Ukraine what is needed. It took well into the Trump administration, even though there were overwhelming majorities to give Ukrainians javelins and other defensive weapons, it took that much time to overcome the bureaucracy and the opposition to giving Ukraine the minimal needs it then requested. And as the threat of war scaled up, the U.S. response was very meager. We were talking about a couple hundred million dollars. And even then, because of some negotiations and when Russia withdrew 10 or 15,000 of the 140 or 150,000 that were around Ukraine's borders, the Biden administration held back even those minor shipments that could have helped a bit more if they had been dramatically accelerated. So I think that U.S. reading of Russia's intentions, you know, the U.S. is claiming we understood that the war was coming. We understood and we tried to tell the Ukrainians, well, you shouldn't have been telling the Ukrainians. You should have been giving them the weapons. That would have made it clear that you believe that an invasion is imminent. But the U.S. was afraid of escalation, even though they then said that war is inevitable. They didn't speed up the provision of weapons. I think part of the problem is also supply chains. Part of this problem is that the military itself wants to reserve for itself the weapons that they have and simply not handing them over to another nation. I think initially there was the fear that the Afghanistan example or the you know Vietnam example where our ally whom we are supporting will fall very quickly and, and don't have the will or the capacity or the interest of fighting and many of these weapons will end up in enemy hands. All those things were factors, but the result is that all the way through there has been this, there have always been arguments and it takes a while to, I would say, convince the bureaucracies and the experts and the policymakers to go the next step. And I think Ukraine will get air power. I think it will get more uh, air defenses. I think it will eventually get tanks. But all of this is always, you know, at the cost of tens of thousands of needless losses of lives and potentially losses of territory and the extension of the war. But curiously enough, I think that the Republicans who say they want to, you know, to monitor closely how the aid is being spent, I think they're more inclined to give Ukraine all the weapons it needs so that it could rapidly win the war, rather than to have a long-term expensive client to whom you have to subsidize for years, if not decades, in a very, very long-term and extended war that could morph into a, you know, a lower intensity but a constant conflict. So I think the problems may be solved by the Republicans wanting to kind of get this thing done so that we can move on to something. Let's just defeat Putin. What are we wasting our time stretching this stuff out? Give the Ukrainians everything they need. Let them do this. 
let's use Russian assets and force Russia to help rebuild Ukraine, and then let's get the hell out of there because we have more important things to do at home. So maybe we we will see in the Republican rhetoric, actually on the military side, that may turn out to be an advantage for Ukraine to speed up the provision of these weapons. This year, the Russian military committed more than 34,000 potential war crimes. It demonstrates the Kremlin's deliberate policy of genocide against Ukrainians. Adrian, why Putin and his elites are so hateful and genocidal? Well, I think that there is a sort of an emotional component in this. Part of the emotional component is his rage at failure, his rage at being exposed, and he's looking for any means necessary of punishing the Ukrainians. I think he's punishing the Ukrainians because he believed that many of them would welcome him as a liberator. When that didn't happen, he wanted to punish ordinary Ukrainians because they weren't the kinds of Ukrainians that he expected to see, which is to say Ukrainians who were part of Ruski Mir. And uh, he believed, I think, that just because someone spoke Russian, that they shared the values of the kind of Russia that he's built over the last two decades. And as I had mentioned earlier, Ukraine's society had evolved in a completely different direction. Ukraine's politics, yes, you had some semi-authoritarian leaders, you know, half-effective, well-intentioned Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. But the society moved in a completely different direction. So I think that's one element. The second element is that, you know, I think he grew up with this Soviet idea, which was a kind of a masking of the Russian imperial idea. And then I think he was deeply influenced by the essay, uh, How Are We to, You Know, Rebuild Russia, that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union. And basically Solzhenitsyn's view was that most Ukrainians are part of Russia. It's only Galicia and the sort of odd places that were under Austro-Hungary and were not really under traditionally historical Russian rule that should be an independent state, but it is up to Russia to ingather all these lands. And the genocidal ideas, I think, come out of authoritarianism and of being unchecked and of being non-accountable. If you establish a system in which you have complete impunity, immunity, and you are unchallenged in what you do, you can very quickly veer away from abiding by some moral or ethical rules. Because sometimes people themselves are moral and ethical. He clearly is not. He's a cold-blooded political operative and killer. But some people who don't have those moral uh, bearings can be kept in line. Uh, You know, there are probably a lot of potential murderers walking around the streets of of, uh, uh, Russia or of major American cities who are kept from doing this by the fear of punishment, by the fear of incarceration, and so on. So the rules sometimes keep people in check. But if you're the top guy, there are no rules. And very quickly, you can, you know, veer off from rational path. And I do think that that the rhetoric of the propagandists, which is intended to build emotion, has moved to the point of race hatred. And I think it's been used as an instrument to mobilize the society, the hatred of the Ukrainians as people who are rejecting their historical destiny in the eyes of Russians. And this rhetoric is also listened to by soldiers. So all of these things, the propaganda memes and themes that have been developing in in Russia, the holy war, the Nazis, the traitorous enemies who've been created by Western powers to attack Russia and undermine Russia, that I think leads people towards the idea that these people have to be physically extinguished. 
If you're not the Ukrainian we thought you were, we either have to kill you or re-educate you. And if you resist, we have to kill you. And so then it becomes a much broader project, not just of occupying a territory or of settling a peace or of demilitarizing. It really means destroying a nation, destroying an identity. And I think that's the logic of Putin. Solzhenitsyn never had the ideas of a genocide against the Ukrainian people. But in the context of a leader without any controls over him, it can very easily move in this sort of direction. Putin is a man who wants to use propaganda in the Soviet way, in the way that the Nazis used it as an instrument to mobilize society and also to mobilize the fighting forces. The more I listen to your arguments, Adrian, the more I am getting convinced that peace negotiations between Putin's Russia and Ukraine are impossible. It's impossible. And I think that this is the difference between, you know, you could make the argument, look, the Finns had a war with the Soviets, uh, and, and yet it was possible for the Finns to accept the loss of certain territories. Well, first of all, most of those territories were very lightly populated. And secondly, there was no historical idea that the Finns are not a people. That was not embedded in Stalin's or in Russian imperial thinking. So precisely because of this completely ahistorical idea that the Ukrainians are one nation, uh, one ethnos with the Russians, that's an even bigger obstacle to a peace based on a, a compromise. The threat from Russia will continue because Russians believe, Putin believes, that there is no thing such as a Ukrainian nation. And, uh, you know, they're pushing for Anschluss with Belarus in a different way, through political means and through pressure and through economic means. They will not stop until they achieve that goal or until they are in some way defeated. What you mean by defeat could be an internal change where more pragmatic leadership comes. It could be battlefield victories. But yes, I think it's extremely difficult to envision some kind of a peace that mimics the Finno-Soviet peace accord. There are discussions among Ukrainian officials that one of the scenarios of the end of the war could be dismemberment of Russia into small independent nations. It's a simple solution. No Russia, no war. 30 years ago, the Moscow-led formation called Soviet Union collapsed by falling apart. Can this happen again? I'm a big skeptic of it. I mean, the Soviet Union fell apart, but remember, the balance of forces was 50% other nationalities and 50% Russians in the ethnic population. In Russia, it's 80-85% of the population is ethnically Russian. There are a couple small territories that if they broke off, it really wouldn't matter. If you lost the Caucasus, it's not going to break up Russia. I think the bigger problem that we might face in Russia is political uneven political unrest based on the consequences of the economy. Russia still has cities and regions that are heavily specialized, kind of a legacy of the Soviet era, not as dispersed. So, for example, places where the Russian auto industry is deeply affected by the economic sanctions and so on. And so we might have some regional upheavals and regional inequities as well as some ethno-political inequities. But I don't think that leads to the geographic breakup any more than I believed that without, you know, an invading force that you would see Ukraine breaking up. Ukraine only lost its territories because there were invasions by the Russians. It did not fall apart of its own. 
states tend to stay together and Ukraine was predominantly ethnically Ukrainian state and now it is a almost universally ethnically and civically Ukrainian state. With Russia, I don't see those kinds of fragmentations. And if Russia fragments, it will not be as a consequence of the war. It might be as a consequence of the weakness that comes from the war and maybe the influence of the Chinese and the influence over decades or centuries of migrations that may change the ethnic character. Russia, east of the Urals, where there are only like, what, 30, 35 million people living in this vast territory. Adrian, what is victory for Ukraine? How can it look like? The return of all territories, even with the hostile anti-Ukrainian population? Well, as a principle, Ukraine can never recognize the loss of any of its territories in any compromise, in any peace agreement. Even if some of these areas remain under Russian control, demand that the international community not recognize these as part of Russia and maintain sanctions until their return to Ukraine should remain the policy. Look, what is victory? I think, you know, other people have argued that there are many ways that you can claim victory. The West sees victory probably, Ukraine recapturing most, if not all, of the territories or a similar amount of territory that it lost after February 24th, and then going back to a kind of a negotiated frozen conflict with a much better armed Ukraine. For Ukraine, I think it's getting as much territory as it can and then getting a security relationship with a group of countries that will make a new invasion much less likely, as well as having the adequate military infrastructure to punish such an invasion. I think there may be some solutions in the longer term where both Europe and Russia can agree to moving their forces from the direct front line, and that would benefit Ukraine. But Ukraine would still need absolute security guarantees. And of course, the biggest victory would be that Ukraine marches and captures all these areas. You know, Ukraine has made amazing gains, but it also reaches a certain limit of capacity. Maybe if they had a big flow of weapons, Ukraine could mount a quicker and bigger offensive. But this feels more like we're in this kind of World War One phase of trench warfare and very slow grinding, very costly battles uh, to take territory. I'm not saying that Ukraine can't make rapid gains and see the collapse of pockets and reclaim, for example, the southern part of Ukraine and maybe inflict terrible damage on Crimea. But I don't see this kind of a victory that we drive every Russian out of the territories and tanks are marching into Sevastopol and uh, Simferopol and hoisting the Ukrainian flag. So I expressed three different variants, but in each of them, the key will be not just where Ukraine Ukraine itself determines is the point at which they can settle. Russia also has to be <laughs> feel vulnerable enough to agree a peace. And finally, Ukraine has to have the kinds of security guarantees. Uh, so the biggest element of peace for Ukraine is which countries will step up after the peace to protect Ukraine from a future attack. And that is, of course, the commission that Michael McFall and Yermak have created to discuss these ideas and so on. And I think that's probably where the real action is for a more lasting, I wouldn't call it a peace, but a secure Ukraine or Ukraine secure from war. That's it for today. You listened to the podcast Ukraine Decoded. My guest was Adrian Karatnitsky, a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and former president of the Freedom House. Thank you for coming. A pleasure. Great to see you. Dear listeners, to help me continue this podcast, please subscribe to small monthly donations on the Anchor website. Also, you can donate directly to my PayPal 
at paypal.me slash mrkovalenko. Links for donations are available in the podcast description. Goodbye and so long.